0: What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more Half assed History this week on the agenda. Going to continue our chat about the mutiny on the Bounty. This is part two of a two-part episode here to do with uh, the mutiny on the Bounty. We'll recap very quickly what we talked about last week, but again, if you didn't listen to last week's episode, I very highly recommend you get across that one before you, uh, you know, understand it. Because oh, mate, all the all the great jokes and the established fiction and the you know the running gags and stuff—you're going to be missing out on just so so much, just pure pure gold material here. Anyway, the bounty was set. Uh, it set sail from uh, Britain all the way over to Tahiti to pick up a bunch of breadfruit plants that it was going to take over to the Caribbean there to uh, to, to plant over there, under the command of William Bligh. Now he had a couple of issues His captain, ran into a few problems with some of his crew, and ultimately this resulted in uh, one of the one of the people on the on the bounty, a bloke named uh, Fletcher Christian, seizing control of the ship in April 1789. And dumping Bly and, uh, and 18 other loyalists, I guess you call them, people who were staying, uh, staying loyal to Bly, uh, in a little boat called a launch off the side there of the, of the ship with a very, very small amount of provisions, uh, five days' worth of rations to be pre- precise, a sextant. And a pocket watch for navigation, and four cutlasses to defend themselves. And that is that. He went off on his merry way, uh, with uh, you know, in control of uh, the bounty, the ship that he just captured. And that's where we're going to pick the story up here. We'll uh, we'll catch we'll catch up with Bly a little bit later on. We're going to continue the story by talking about exactly what Christian F- uh, Fletcher Christian. I was going I was going to always going to make that mistake at some point. I'm surprised it didn't take me this long. I mean, what kind of a name is Fletcher Christian? Obviously, your name should be Christian Fletcher. So I don't know what his parents are thinking. Anyway, beside the point. Old mate Christian. We're going to pick up the story with him and and figure out exactly what he did after he uh, seized control of the ship and uh, and where he went after this. So after he's taken control of the bounty here, after he's booted Bly and all of the loyalist mates off there, he, uh, he made a couple of changes to the way that the ship's business was run. The first thing he did, pretty hilariously was chuck out every last breadfruit plant that had been collected in Tahiti, every single last one, all thousand of them, chucked straight overboard. He obviously wanted the captain's cabin for himself. He then also divided all of the loyalists' possessions and all the gear amongst the mutineers. And when I say mutineers here, I'm talking about all of the actual literal mutineers who supported Christian and uh, also the, the, the people who wanted to go with Bly but couldn't. And the people who weren't fussed one way or the other, because you'll remember, not everyone was uh, was red hot on the on the mutiny. There, some of them, some of them, all gangbusters loved it. They were big, big fans of it. Others were pretty ambivalent, and others actively try to avoid the mutiny. Wanted to wanted to go off with Bly and remain loyal. Anyway, we're going to call them all mutineers here for the sake of simplicity, so we don't get confused. Christian. After having distributed all these possessions and got rid of all the breadfruit plants, he then examines all of the maps and the charts that Bly had been forced to leave behind, 15 years of work put into these naval charts by Bly, and they've all been left behind here. And Christian, he's looking for something very specific. He's looking for a hidden, out-of-the-way island to go and well go and hide on basically he knows that it's very very possible that Bly might survive and get back to Britain and so he wants to make himself scarce he wants to make himself as hard to find as possible he decides that they'll head to an island called Tubuai uh, which is uh, was spotted but not landed on by Captain Cook uh, about 800 kilometers south of Tahiti so off they go like it or not and after a, uh, a month at sea the bounty arrives at Tubuai on the 28th of May 1789 and it's here as I say that Christian is hoping to set up shop and, and set up a little settlement from which he can, you know, hide from uh, hide from any potential British retribution. The reason that uh, he's picked two by, of course, it's out of the way, it's not very well traversed, never been landed on by Europeans, and it's surrounded by reefs. It's surrounded by it's this sort of island, surrounded by a lagoon, which is then surrounded by reefs with a very small opening that only one ship could get through at a time. And so Christian reckons it'd be per- the perfect place to hide out and, if need be, defend themselves if the British ever come looking for them. The problem is, however, the island is... Is already inhabited, and the locals are not huge fans of these bloody European immigrants and their big this you know this big ship they're bringing with them. So they come out in the war canoes. They're ready for a fight and 12 of them are actually killed when Christian turns the bounty's guns on them. Very unfortunate result for the the natives there, for the locals. Now, Christian, after having done this, he lands with a bunch of other mutineers. He scouts out the island with an armed search party and he decides it is the perfect spot to set up shop. But the problem is that if they're going to settle there permanently, they need more people to settle with them. They need you know other people who are going to help them build buildings and set up farms and all that sort of stuff. And they also need, specifically, they also need a bunch of women if they're hoping to start up you a little civilization their own and sort of you know continue to propagate. So the mutineers, they come up with a little plan here as to how they're going to get the people they need. And I'll tell you this, it is a bloody devious one. They sail back to Tahiti. They sail back up north to Tahiti, and they go back to Chief tyner the person who they'd met previously when they were gathering all the pre all the uh, the breadfruit plants in episode one. And they say, to him, "Oh, good day, mate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, look, really good. Yeah, yeah, good. Thanks. Um, look, we are setting up a new settlement." uh out on an island out there us and uh, your mates blind captain cook big fan of them obviously they can't come right now they're out there off they're busy doing you know captain ship stuff and all that sort of stuff but we've come here to let you know that they're setting up this settlement hoping for you to you know chuck a couple of resources our way and help us out in settling up setting up this settlement now obviously they're lying through their teeth bligh has nothing to do with it he's off you know somewhere in the middle of the pacific on the, on his little launch there uh and let alone captain cook who is you know who knows where at this stage uh, but Tyner, as I said, he bloody loves Captain Cook. He loves him so much that he falls for this rubbish uh, this, that, that, uh, that, that Christian is spouting. He falls for a hook, line and sinker. Tyner gives him a bunch of, uh, of supplies, including livestock, as well as ordering 30 locals to go and help them set up this, uh, this new settlement. So the mutineers, they sail back down to Tubuai, they're laden down with all the stuff they'd been given, as well as these Tahitians they'd picked up, and they have another go at setting up shop on this island. They land once again, and in the coming weeks, they try to build themselves a little base with a moat around it so they can defend themselves not only from any British search parties, but also from all the poor old locals on Tubai, who, as I say, they can't stand them, can't buddy stand all these, all these bloody immigrants running around these days, or, you know, not like back in my day when I was a kid or anything like this. Ultimately, and quite unfortunately, too, I have to say, uh, there ends up being more than a few scraps between Christian's mutineers and uh, and the locals there. And it ends in this big battle where over 60 of the locals are killed. And, and Christian, after this bloodbath, he realises that things aren't going his way and that people are start uh, starting to get sick of him as the head honcho. So he gets everyone together and he says, now, listen here, you blokes, what do you want to do? Obviously, you're all pretty unhappy chappy. So, you know, what do you reckon our next movie is here? What, what, what do you think the plan is? Now, a lot of the mutineers, well, 16 of them to be precise, they want to go back to Tahiti and they want to hang out there for good. Now, eight of them, they say they'll stick with Christian no matter what. So there's a, there's a, a fair decision, a fair you know split between uh, between what the decision is going to be here. Now, Christian, he goes away, he think about it, and he goes, you know what, I'm not going to fight this fight. Bugger this, I'm not going to fight this fight. He gives in and he decides that they're all going to sail back to Tahiti together and they're going to drop the 16 people off along with the locals that they've more or less kidnapped, uh, and they're going to figure it out from there, figure out what the next move is going to be. So they give up on Tubuai. They you know they sail away, say goodbye to all the locals there. They sail and they sail back to Tahiti in September 1789, arriving on the 22nd. And the Tahitians, I will tell you this: they are not too pleased to see them. They have found out that not only this new you know whole new settlement thing was a big fat lie, but also that Captain Cook is dead. And so they're pretty pissed off, to say the least. Not wanting to stick around. Christian obviously doesn't want to make things even worse with the Tahitians by staying around, abusing the the hospitality any any further. He lets all of the people who want to stay in Tahiti get off the ship except for one, this poor bloke, the poor old armourer, a bloke named Joseph Coleman. And Christian forces Coleman to stay on the bounty because he needs his skills as an armourer. And he says, no, mate, sorry, I know you want to go and live live in the lap of luxury on Tahiti, but it's not going to happen, mate. I need you here. Now, Coleman, he's not happy about it. He's very unhappy indeed, but Christian doesn't care. Um, he doesn't have much of a plan, honestly. Christian doesn't have much of a plan where he's going to go, what he's going to do. But he realises that if he is going to go and try to set up this, you know, a new sort of civilization, new little settlement for himself on an island somewhere, he does need more than just himself and these eight other blokes to get things going. But he knows that the Tahitians aren't going to fall for this, uh, oh, we're starting a settlement line again. So what he does is this. You'll remember the Christian and the rest of the blokes, they spent five months in Tahiti. they know a fair few of the locals. So he goes around and he invites a bunch of them, a bunch of the people he knows. He says, listen, we're having a bit of a, you know, in a shindig, we're having a bit of a, a do on the on the ship tonight. We're going to, you know, hit, hit the bottle and have a good time and have a bit of a dance in a sink. So you guys should all come along. It's going to be great. Now, obviously, you know, he goes around and he talks to a lot of locals, including a couple of the women that he, you know, is acquainted with from uh, his previous time in tahiti and sure enough a bunch of them turn up that night they go onto the ship they're given the booze and they're having a great time little party gets underway you know they're stacking and coming on they're getting stuck into the source having a bit of a dance enjoying themselves having a good time and then the christian cuts the anchor lines and starts to sneakily sail away from Tahiti with all of these poor people on board. Now Coleman, the armourer, he realises quick smart what's going on when the ship starts moving and so check this out, he dives off the side of the ship and swims to shore and makes it away. He doesn't want to be part of this mutiny from the get-go, you'll remember. He's one of the people that William Bly promised uh, salvation or, or justice from if he ever got back to Britain and so he doesn't want any, any part of it and he managed to escape from the, uh, from the, the clutches of Christian there, gets back to Tahiti, safe and sound. But the poor Tahitians—they're all stuck there. You know, they're pissed as chooks. They're not having a great time, and uh, and as a result, they're now sailing away to goodness knows where. I mean, can you imagine what this is like? Bloody kidnapped, essentially. A bit of a rubbish move from old mate Christian. There, I think it's fair to say. But all the same, he's off and away. He's having a great time. He's got his eight mutineers. He's got his 20 Tahitians, six blokes, 14 women. And uh, he's ready for whatever comes next. As I say, he didn't have much of a plan. Apparently, what he said was when he addressed the people, when he asked what he's going to do, this is what he said. He said his plan was to run before the wind and land upon the first island the ship drives. After what I have done, I cannot remain at Tahiti. Anyway, back on Tahiti. The 16 other blokes from the bounty, they get going with their own projects. A couple of them starting to build a ship to sail to the Dutch East Indies to to surrender themselves to the authorities there. They never want to depart into the mutiny. They want to prove their innocence. They don't want to get off Tahiti and say, listen, this is what happened. And, you know, we're back here to prove that we're honest men. But others, they just get back into the good old-fashioned Jimmy Buffett Island living here. They're getting on the source and generally enjoying the old unbridled hedonism again. And two of them actually die as a result of this. One of them murders the other, and then the other is murdered by the mates of the bloke that he murdered. So looks like the wages of sin included a big end-of-year bonus this time around for these two blokes. But this is where we leave the story of the mutineers for now. Fourteen of the Bounty's ex-crew members, they're on Tahiti. Some of them building a ship. Some of them just kicking back and taking it easy. And while Christian and his eight other mutineers, they're sailing off into the distance to see what they see. And we're going to pause the story there as far as the, uh, the mutineers are concerned and jump back over now, rewind and talk about what happened with Bly after he was set adrift with his loyalists on this small launch back in April 1789. Now, as we talked about last week, Bly sailed towards Tofua, which is a near, you know, that the tiny island nearby. You could see a big plume of smoke coming off from the distance and he goes, okay, well, we know there's land there. We're going to sail towards there. So he puts up the sail, makes his way to Tofua, tiny little island, and he finds food and water and then heads for Tongatapu, which is the main island of, uh, of modern day Tonga. And once he gets there, the Tongan king, uh, Pulaho, uh, was, was friendly enough at first, especially considering, you know, that the Tongans weren't the most sort of welcoming to, uh, you know, to, uh, a lot of the time, a little bit unpredictable, these blokes were some of the time to, to visitors. But the Tongan king, is he's, uh, he's friendly enough, as I say, and he helps Bly replenish his supplies. Um, that also met uh, before when Bly was with Captain Cook. And uh, unfortunately, you know, the goodwill that any any goodwill that Bly to begin with is, is run through Pretty pretty quickly, the things go downhill. You know, before very much longer, Bly realizes they're outstay- outstaying their welcome, and that the Tongans uh, were getting pretty sick of them pretty bloody quick. And so he gets everyone together and he says, "Listen, actually, we need to make tracks very quickly. We need to uh, we need to put some the wind in ourselves and get out of here." The Tongans they try to prevent. Bly and his crew from leaving. They uh, When they realise that uh, you know, that, that, that Bly and the Loyalists are trying to get out of there, the Tongans try to stop them. And uh, as they're loading themselves into the launch, the Tongans come and grab the ropes that are attached, attached to the launch. And in a brave act of what ended up being self-sacrifice, Bly's quartermaster, John Norton, jumps out of the boat to try to get the Tongans to let go of the rope. Now, tragically, he didn't survive this. He was stoned to death, but it did give Bly and everyone else the chance that they needed to finally escape from the Tongans before things really went uh, really went to, you know, south very quickly indeed. The plan from here was to sail east to a Dutch colony called Kupang in Timor, which was 6,500 kilometres away. I think I mentioned how uh, Bly had been forced to leave all of his navigational charts behind. The, you know They're now in the hands of Christian here. And, and again, all that Bly has to navigate with is a sextant and a pocket watch here. So for him to try to make this enormously perilously perilous journey at the best of times – Across six and a half thousand kilometers, right? I mean, for all his faults, Bly was a hell of a seaman, and he was definitely, you know, getting on the front foot and trying to get 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 the job done here against insurmountable odds with you know the most basic navigational equipment you can imagine. Here, this bloke is going to try to attempt a journey of a lifetime. Anyway, Bly and the crew, they divide up the provisions they've got, and they work out that the daily ration for the people that are remaining, is going to be, get this, about 30 grams of bread and 140 mils of water a day. A truly tiny amount of both food and water is supposed to last all of these people until they get to this Dutch colony. And it is, I mean, you can imagine how they must have been feeling as they set off. You, you can What are the odds of these people actually making it? Unbelievable. On top of this... The weather was horrific. Storms, great big bloody waves. But Bly, he is working tirelessly to keep everyone safe and to keep the journey going. Apparently, he's learnt from his mistakes, and he's actually trying to keep people's spirits up with stories and songs. He's telling them tales from when he, you know, all these adventures with Captain Cook and every all you know all the stuff like that. And uh, generally, he seemed to be a little bit more chilled out for you know for the for the most part at least. Uh, so that was something at least. Now, they sailed through the Fijian islands, but they didn't stop there because the uh, locals had a uh, bit of a reputation for cannibalism. And instead, they just doggedly kept sailing west. Now, a full month after the mutiny, on the 28th of May, the launch arrived at the northeastern coast of modern-day Australia. Bloody Australia, mate. Best country on Earth and Bly steers the Loyalists through to a little island that he named Restoration Island. Now, there, the crew, they got off the boat. They gorged themselves on berries and oysters and everything else they could find. Bloody brilliant. They got nice full bellies again. But it's here the tension and strife is beginning to emerge between all of the loyalists here, and it's getting worse and worse, as there was very, very little in the way of food and drink once they set off again, and, and being on restoration on with an abundance of these things was a reminder of how hard-pressed they were to actually try to make it to Kupang and Timor in a, you know in, in a timely fashion. Now, you can imagine who, uh, who copped the brunt of it here. Last week, we talked about poor old Purcell, the carpenter. And how Bly seems to have had a real chip in his shoulders, uh, shoulder about him. I, I, you know, I don't know, I don't know what Purcell did in this uh, situation, but he did get in 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 Bly's crosshairs once again, and it was actually enough for Bly to grab a cutlass and threaten him with it, which is pretty bloody full on. So you know, the atmosphere obviously not particularly pleasant at this point. But they get through it, and they crack on. They head north to Cape York, the northernmost point of uh, the Australian mainland. There. And Bly navigates through this series of reefs and sandbanks and shoals doing a masterful job of it, too. I mean, say what you want about him as a bloke, but when he was in charge of a ship, he definitely knew what he was doing. The problem was, however, their supplies are now running so perilously, so devastatingly low, and they've spent such a long time in this tiny boat subsisting on minimum rations. I mean, all these people, they're half dead. They're half dead already, and they're, you know, they're still miles and miles away from Cupang, and the the any hope they have is, is is swiftly fading. And so as the ship, you know, as the, this little boat drags on and on further, further east towards their final destination, people are half dead, they're exhausted, they're exposed, they're, they're having a terrible time with exposure and whatever else. But Captain Bly, he keeps his snoot above water, he keeps his chin up, and amazingly, incredibly, the small launch arrives in the port of Kupang, this Dutch colony, on the 14th of June, 1789. All of the people make it alive, but despite the miraculous journey, and despite all of the, you know, all the loyalist crew just surviving the trip, the story isn't completely a happy one, because after landing, five of those who made it to Timor, they end up dying. Well, I mean, obviously, all of them end up dying eventually, obviously, but, you know, five of them never made it back to Britain alive is my point. Five of them died there. Obviously, they all die eventually. I mean, not, you know, they, they didn't discover the, the the fountain of youth here at this point, but you know, you, you understand what I'm saying. Bligh, he doesn't waste a second. He gets back to Timor. He sends off he sends off letters back to Britain to let people know what's going on. And the, as soon as he can, as swiftly as he can, he uh, he is intent. Upon having Christian and the rest of the mutineers suffer the terrible retribution of the Royal Navy. And so he gets himself booked, uh, secures himself passage back to Britain as fast as humanly possible. He sails back, as I say, as quick as he can, arrives back in Britain on the 14th of March, 1790, uh, almost a year after the mutiny itself. So he's been through hell and high water to get back to Britain and and bring these mutineers to account. But what happens when he arrives? He gets court-martialed. He gets court-martialed himself as they investigate what happened to the bounty, but of course, Bligh is cleared. He's acquitted. He gets cleared of responsibility, and not only that, he also is hailed as this great hero. He's come home. He, against all the odds, he's come home. Done the right thing. He's, he tried to, you know, to, to seek justice for these people who wronged him, and he gets a bloody promotion. And that is not all. Check this out. <laughs> I mean, all that's sort of fair enough, and you can see that Bligh, you know, he's gone through a lot. But this is just laughable. This is ridiculous. As part of the court martial. Bly brings some charges of his own against one of the crew members, and you'll never guess who it is. Poor old Purcell the carpenter, who still can't catch a break with Bly, right? But luckily, you know, the court-martial has a modicum of sense here, and not too much comes, but Purcell gets a slap on the wrist. He gets a bit of a reprimand, but, but I mean, still, Bly has zero chill with his poor bloke Purcell. I mean, come on, what's going on there? Anyway. In the aftermath of this court-martial, the British government decide that the mutineers obviously can't left to be, you know, get away with his outrage, and so they send off a ship to the uh, the Pacific in uh, in November 1790 to try to track them down. They dispatch the HMS Pandora, which is captained by uh, Captain Edward Edwards, whose parent must, parents must have had a terrific sense of humour, um, and uh, Edward Edwards is ordered to uh, sail to Tahiti, and track down Christian and the rest of the mutineers. Now, Edwards, he dutifully makes his way uh, on the Pandora down to Tahiti, and he arrives on the 23rd of March in 1791, about a year and a half after Christian had dropped off those 16 blokes. And, believe it or not, all of them are still there. Well, 14 of them are still there, minus the two that got killed, obviously. And all of them are rounded up and captured very swiftly indeed. Now, some of them, they give themselves up immediately. One of them, in fact, uh, Haywood, the, who was uh, one of the uh, the warrant officers, when he sees the, uh, the Pandora coming into port in Tahiti, he gets into a canoe and, and and you know, sails out to the ship itself to give himself up and say, I didn't have anything to do with the mutiny, I'm here. And this is like, you know, in your primary school and you have a fight with another kid and it's whoever makes it to the teacher first generally gets away with it, right? That's what Haywood's trying to do. He's trying to get out there and get getting good with Edward and say, listen, mate, I don't have anything to do with it, I'm here, I'm giving myself up. But... No favor, no you know, absolutely no favors are given to any of the mutineers, any of the people who went off with uh, uh, with Christian there, regardless of whether they were on side with him or not. Edwards locks them all up. Uh, doesn't there's no special treatment for any of them, regardless of anything there like that. Um, and uh, even though a bunch of them are protesting their innocence, right? They're all you know what i'm saying they never wanted a mutiny nothing like that he doesn't give a toss edward doesn't give a toss he whacks them all into this big specially built cage this big prison on the pandora which had been very cleverly nicknamed pandora's box which i quite like Um, edwards then spent some time in tahiti investigating where christian may have gone no one has any idea Obviously, Christian himself didn't have much of an idea, and he didn't he didn't tell anyone if he did, and so uh, Edwards ultimately has a fruitless search on Tahiti, and so he decides to start checking in on the islands nearby. Now, the Pandora sails about for a couple of months until uh, August 1791, and they find so little evidence of, of anything to do with Christian or the bounty that they ultimately give up. They find a few indications the bounty may have landed on Palmerston Island at some point, but apart from that, they end up with diddly squat, end up with empty hands. And so having finally had enough, Edwards, he turns the Pandora around and he starts to sail back to Britain. But his adventures haven't quite finished there. On the way, on the 29th of August in 1791, the Pandora strikes a reef just off the coast of Australia, the Great Barrier Reef, and it starts to sink and all of our prisoner mates are uh, in a cage now. Most of the Pandora's crew, unfortunately, they ignore them. They're you know seeing their own safety there, but some of the prisoners are let out to try to man the pumps and uh, and prevent the Pandora from sinking. But it's no good now. Edwards gives the orders for the prisoners to have their shackles cast off and uh, and, and you know so they can uh, attempt to escape as well. But the armourer doesn't manage to uh, to free everyone. And unfortunately, only ten of the fourteen prisoners actually make it off the ship alive. The other four are uh, they, they they perish. They are sent to the the briny deeps down there in Davy Jones' locker. And uh, very unfortunately, uh, the uh, you know out of the, the the entire crew of all the people on the Pandora, thirty one of the other crew members uh, also perish. So it's quite it's quite a disaster. Um, as for the the Pandora itself, the wreckage is still there. You can, uh, I mean, I don't know. I was going to say you can still visit it. You probably can't do that. You probably honestly can't go and do that. It's thirty meters below water, and it's you know it's a heavily protected archaeological site. there, as, uh, as people still today researching what what was going on. It's uh, one of the best. Uh, it's probably the most uh, well well preserved uh, shipwreck in the southern hemisphere. And, and as a result, obviously, you know there's a, a bunch of protections. So I was going to say you can go visit. It. You probably can't, but still, point is, it's there. But here's the most amazing part of this whole, uh, of this whole thing with uh, with the Pandora and with Edwards. Edwards is forced to make a journey with all of the people who, you know, uh, were, were su- managed to survive the shipwreck. He's, he's forced to make a journey to Kupang in Timor, which you'll remember is where Bly sailed on his little launch with everyone there. And so as the Pandora is sleeping in the briny deeps or the reefy shallows, really, Edwards now has to get the rest of his crew safely to Timor in little open boats, just like Bly. So in the end, almost everyone on the bounty, all of the people who went with Bly, and now almost all the people who didn't go with Bly as well, right, end up making a perilous journey around Cape York and through to Timor in small open boats, taking almost exactly the same route. Um, it's amazing, right? What Think of that. Anyway, Edwards gets them to Coupang safely on the 17th of September. The prisoners were kept bound the whole way, so there's no trouble there, and they obviously had a a little bit more in the way of provisions to keep themselves uh, ticking along while they got there. And then these prisoners, they're transferred. They're kept locked away for almost two months until uh, preparations can be made to take them back to Britain. They're transferred on a ship there to Cape Town and then again transferred to another ship that takes them back to Britain. And they arrive in Portsmouth on the 19th of June, 1792. They are immediately court-martialed, as you might imagine. Now, you'll remember, Bly had promised justice to those who hadn't been able to join him on his launch, and you will be happy to hear that they got it too. Four of the ten are acquitted straight away after they've been told exactly what happened and how they didn't want to be part of this whole uh, this whole situation. But the other six aren't so lucky, and as at least three of them are you know, keen as mustard mutineers here, this isn't exactly a surprise. All six of these others receive the death penalty, but only three of them actually receive it three end up being uh, pardoned after convincing the authorities that they weren't willing mutineers. However, the other three, they are hanged from a yardarm on a ship there, and that is the end of their story. But rather interestingly... Two of the blokes that got pardoned, two of these three blokes blokes that got pardoned, they went straight back into the Navy. One of them, James Morrison, became a master gunner, and the other one, Peter Haywood, became a captain in his own right and had a very illustrious uh, career as a a proud member of the the Royal Navy. So quite unbelievably, just goes straight back into it there. But outside of this, you know, the specific fate of the people involved, the court-martial generated a fair bit of controversy. I'll tell you this. Firstly... The three people who got pardoned were a fair bit bloody wealthier and, and better connected than the three who were hanged, and this led to suspicion that money had bought the three of them, these three men, their lives with better lawyers, better access to uh, you know these nobles and royals for character references and, and whatever else, and, and it seemed to be a little bit of a class division between the people who survived and the people who didn't. So that obviously wasn't ideal. Secondly, Bligh's reputation. Which had been pretty positive up until this point, a brave hero prevailed through great hardship, trying to bring you know justice to the people who you know seized his ship, all that sort of stuff. His reputation completely shot, completely shot after this, shot to bits. It was the defendants in the court martial described Bligh as an overbearing, cruel, and tyrannical captain. Uh, in order to make the mutiny seem a little bit more understandable, a little bit more palatable, and this actually kind of worked, because when Bligh got back from his next expedition, he'd been sent off for a, a second bread fruit mission, and this time completed it successfully, Uh, he was so unpopular with the public, he was seen as, again, this nasty, cruel tyrant, um, and even this extended to people in the Royal Navy. His, his superiors refused to meet with him, even after the, he got back from this uh, successful mission. And he was left unemployed on half pay for over a year and a half before the Navy finally gave him another assignment. So he sort of you know, lived out a, couple of, a fair bit of time in you know, a couple of, almost a year and a half there in, in, in disgrace, basically, after, after it emerged how he treated his, uh, his crew on this journey. But he really did have to weather a fair bit of backlash after this court-martial. Even the acquitted loyalists, the people who, you know, had had been promised justice by him, they admitted to the truth that Bly was a real difficult old bastard. But I have to say, nonetheless, his reputation did recover in the years to come and it recovered enough uh, to have him appointed as the governor of the new Australian colony of New South Wales. He was the fourth ever governor of, of New South Wales in 1805. Uh, largely due to people knowing how much of a hard-ass he was due to his, you know, interdiscipline and order he was. His reputation for that preceded him, and they thought this would be, be the perfect bloke to, uh, to head down to the wilds of Australia and uh, and keep people in line. But it turns out that he wasn't so flash at the old governor business, however, because he was deposed by the military in 1808 as part of the Rum Rebellion, uh, which remains the only successful military coup in all of Australia's history. So, uh, yeah, yeah, not 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 such a not such a, a good job uh, in that in that department anyway for poor old William Bligh. But as you can imagine, that's another story for another time. There's only one loose end that we need to tie up here before we wrap up the show for this week. What happened to Christian and the others still aboard the Bounty as they sailed off in 1789? Pretty important question, so let's get across it. Let's find out what what happened to these blokes. Christian had heard tell of an island, hundreds and hundreds of miles from anywhere, somewhere out east of Tahiti. No one had recorded its exact position. There were vague stories or indications about its 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 you know this it's this sort of nebulous description about where it may have been. And Christian decides this is perfect because if he can find this island, no one else is going to have a great idea of where it is. And so he decides they're going to search for this island they're going to set up there. So after looking and looking for months and months on end, the mutineers led by Christian, they finally come across Pitcairn Island. It was actually hundreds of kilometers away from the vague descriptions that have been made. And this is perfect in Christian's mind because it means, again, this can be very hard to find. No one has a good idea of where it is. No one's got a good semblance of you know, the exact location of this island. It's a perfect place to hide out. And on top of that, plenty of fresh water, farmable land, food growing there as well. It means that Christian decides it is the perfect place to settle down for good. So this means the bounty after arriving in Pitcairn Island on the 15th of January 1790, is stripped for everything that might be useful in establishing a settlement, and then is set alight. The bounty, it goes up in flames and is burnt to cinders so as to prevent anyone from having a change of heart and trying to leave and also destroying any evidence of ships that might sail past at a distance, seeing that ship, uh, you know, uh, parked there. Ships aren't parked, what are they? Docked. Docked there. Not. There's not a dock, though. Obviously, it's just an island. I'll go with parked. Parked sounds good. The ship being parked there, obviously, you know, evidence of the ultimate fate of the bounty and this is not something that christian was interested in so destroying the evidence you know send it as a big lump of charcoal to the, to the bottom of the ocean very very smart stuff there now as i say ireland perfect for the mutineers no one lived there no one really knows no one else really knows where it was so obviously you think it, it's going to be uh, it's going to be pretty smooth sailing from here however in spite in spite of all of these factors coming together for the mutineers life was not particularly peaceful for everyone as they set up shop growing tension emerges, this unease between the people living there. Uh, Even after they build houses, they sow crops and they pair off, many of them even having children, the mutineers and the Tahitians, and remember the Tahitians are basically being kidnapped, right? They are not getting on. They're not getting on very well. They keep coming into conflict. And after, you know, months and months go by and these this slowly simmering tension between these, uh, you know, all these people living there, it eventually erupts into violence. It eventually erupts into uh, into a pretty full-scale bloodshed uh, a couple of years, two years after they'd settled on the island. Five of the mutineers are murdered at the hands of the kidnapped Tahitians, and one of these five mutineers is fletcher christian he was uh out working in his fields there when he was uh, shot and then he was chopped to bits with an axe and apparently his last words aren't, aren't the most i mean they're not sort of i mean if you if you really want some good last last words look up the last words of Roll dahl i'm not going to spoil them for you here by telling you what they were but they're very, they're definitely going to be worth your while but the last words of fletcher christian apparently were oh dear so yeah put that in your headstone anyway The killings didn't stop there. Within three months, all of the Tahitian men are also killed, either by the widows of the mutineers or by each other, right? So this just leaves the Tahitian women and four of the mutineers, two of whom are just beyond... Any kind of hope. They are drinking themselves to death. They've figured out how to make alcohol from from a local plant, and they are hitting the bottle like there is no tomorrow. And for one of them, there is no tomorrow. He actually killed himself after you know having, you know drunk himself half to death. There he, he went, and took the other half, he took his own life. And the other was killed by the two remaining mutineers because he's just going around causing trouble and, and generally making a nuisance of himself and, and making it impossible for everyone to co- coexist peacefully. So he is actually killed by the the two final mutineers that have survived one of whom then goes on to die uh, halfway through an asthma attack in 1800. So this means that at the beginning of the 19th century, the very last remaining mutineer on the island was a bloke named John Adams, and he took charge and he tried to establish a sense of peace and order. At this stage, living on Pitcairn Island, there were Adams, nine Tahitian women, and 19 kids. And it seemed that everything actually after this point remained relatively peaceful from then onwards. Adams did a fantastic job of settling the island into a routine. He educated the children. He kept things ticking along nicely and turned it into this sort of quite idyllic little civilization right there in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. Pitcairn Island, it remains quite literally off the map, off the grid there for a very long amount of time until 1808, when a uh, an American ship arrived at Pitcairn Island by accident, and they were baffled to find this happy little community there. They eventually actually went back and reported it to the British, but at that stage it was 1810 by the British, by the time the Royal Navy found out about it, and they were a little bit busy fighting uh, a bloke you may have heard of called a Napoleon uh, to care too much about some, you know, blasted mut- near at the arse end of the world, so they just let it go. Some British ships eventually did sail past Pitcairn Island in 1814, and they were met by the children of the original mutineers, all grown up now, including the magnificently named Thursday October Christian the I, the son of Fletcher Christian. And at this stage in 1814, there were 46 people living on Pitcairn Island in relative harmony there. And the entire community, essentially at this stage, was held together by John Adams and his leadership and, you know, and the things that he'd done for the island there. And as a result of this, he was actually granted amnesty for his past crimes, being part of the mutiny in the past. And the British, they decided to just leave well enough alone. Now, Adams eventually died. The very last surviving mutineer from the bounty, the whole bounty episode, he died at the age of 61 in 1829. And the single town on Pitcairn Island, it still bears his name today, Adamstown. And further, even today, well over 200 years after Fletcher Christian and his mutineers arrived on Pitcairn Island, there are still 50 people living there today and most of these people are the direct descendants of the bounty mutineers themselves. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of the mutiny on the bounty in its entirety. I do hope you enjoyed it. It's a cracker of a story, I reckon. I hope you got something out of it there like that. And it's just fascinating to learn that the Pitcairn Islands, still inhabited by the descendants of the, of, of the mutineers, even today, the 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 surnames of all the people on the... But there's still Christians and McCoys and Youngs and Adams there, still, de- as I say, direct descendants of the people who landed there all the way back in, uh, in, in 1790 there. Anyway, anyway. That is that for this week. Of course, back next week for more Half Hour History. Until then, jump on our website, HalfHourHistory You'll uh, you'll find all the episode, previous episodes there, and uh, you can get in touch with the show as well. Get in touch with me uh, with the contact form there, um, and I'm happy to get in touch, in touch with you if you want me to send you a sticker or a couple of stickers, actually, free of charge. Just send me through your address, email me through your address, I'll send that to you through to you. And of course, any ideas for episodes, always welcome here. I, I can't guarantee they're going to turn into episodes. I do have to sort of see if they're, you know, going to going to be i don't know workable into the into the format we have here but i definitely i'll definitely give my best shot and, and, and see what i can do as usual of course uh i would very much appreciate if you could uh if you could spread the message and and let people know about uh, about this podcast and uh you know try to get a, try to get the numbers up there got you know rookie numbers i need i gotta lift those numbers gotta get those numbers up so any any help in that regard is certainly appreciated and um, that's about that. I'm going to close the show out. Of course, every the way we do every week with a question posed on Reddit. This time, another science question. Been doing a lot of research into uh, into botany, into plants. Of course, we had a plant based question last time, and uh, once again, we're getting uh, we're diving down into the world of botany, and, and specifically with breadfruit this time around. Question posed by Reddit scientist Crazy Otto eighty seven, who wants to know: After they make breadfruit by baking it in ovens, how do they attach it to the trees?